Artistic Whispers Productions presents... Down from Ten, a country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of... Philippa Ballantyne. T. Morris. Kitty Nakian. Nathan Lowell. Miss Calendar. Nobilis Reed. Christiana Ellis. Chris Lester. With original music by Danny Shade. This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, this is PC Herring, author of Cybrosis, a cyberpunk podcast novel, with new episodes dropping every Friday morning at www.cybrosisnovel.com. You're listening to episode 21 of Down From 10, and this is the story so far. The body painting session ground to a screeching halt when Kevin discovered wounds in everyone's crotches. Small, circular, symmetrical, and identical. Before the group was able to decide what to do, a scream shattered the grim silence. There is a body in the upstairs bedroom, and Sarah has found it. Chapter 21 E-4 Evening Gerd saw her the second he mounted the landing, Sarah with her back to the wall next to Jeremiah's door. Her mouth hung open mutely, tears streaming down her cheeks, her head shaking slowly from side to side as if the motion could wipe the memory of whatever she'd just seen from her vision and make it not so. Ahead of him, Amos skidded to a halt in his tracks to check Sarah, giving Gerd a moment to catch up. The writer seemed satisfied that she was in no immediate danger, so stood and, without looking at Gerd, walked through the open door. Gerd followed. Amos blocked his view, but the way in which Amos shook his head and sighed resignedly pretended nothing good. Gerd's suspicions were nauseatingly confirmed when Amos stepped forward and leaned over the bed. It was clear even from where Gerd was standing that Jeremiah was dead. The color had gone out of his skin, and his eyes were open and didn't glisten. They'd been open long enough to dry out. Gerd felt his stomach turn ever so slightly at the thought, or possibly the stench. God! Katie's voice, behind him. Gerd looked back to see her holding the cuff of her robe over her nose. She must have grabbed it on the run up here. It smells like a toilet in here. What is that? The normal stuff you'd find in a toilet, probably. Amos muttered offhandedly as he circled around, continuing his examination of the body. Katie brushed past Gerd, leading Kevin behind her. Huh? What do you mean? Amos jerked his nose toward Jeremiah's legs as he examined the inside of the former dancer's mouth. The look on his face, intense and closed, gave no clue to what he was looking for or what he might be finding. He continued as if reading out of a textbook. If a person dies while their bladder or colon is full, the death throes push all the waste out. Gerd stood by uselessly. In the hallway behind him, he could hear Carol and Adele tending to Sarah, and Amos seemed to be running through an entire script to which none of the rest of them were privy. He moved on from the body to examining items on the end table and, after a moment, picked up a bottle and raised his eyebrows in what looked like grim satisfaction. He cast a wry look toward the corpse. Is that why you're so dry? Ten points against TV realism. Anything we can do? Amos held up the bottle. I found this. See what other drugs he has hanging around. Roger. 
Gerd took the drawers in the bureau on the near side of the bed while Kevin and Katie attacked the dresser. For his part, Gerd found nothing noteworthy, and before he could get to the second drawer, Amos lifted the sheet off the corpse and bent over, examining its crotch. The macabre spectacle demanded his attention in spite of his better wishes. Yep. He has, or rather had, that mark too. Whatever this is, we've all got it. The ersatz doctor pulled the sheet back over the corpse, this time covering the grisly face. Gerd breathed a little easier, as easily as he could with the stench still filling the room. Ho, 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 looky here. Kevin stood triumphantly, holding up another bottle. What do you make of this one? Amos crossed to him and took the bottle, swirling it around and grimacing. Ipecac. Almost empty. What, was he afraid he'd accidentally lick someone's leather jacket? You know, Kevin, a nice, turgid, throbbing dickhead can be the sexiest, tastiest thing in the world. Or it can be the most irritating force in the universe. Be a force for good. Sorry. No, it's something else. Did he look sick to you the last couple of days? Oui, he looked tired. The smell was getting to be too much for him. Gerd retreated out through the door. He'd seen all he needed to. In the hallway, out of the worst of the reek, he found Adele and Carol helping Sarah to her feet. Adele relinquished her post at Sarah's right hand to Gerd, who held it as he and Carol walked the stunned choreographer to the end of the hallway and deposited her on Carol's bed. Gerd knelt down in front of her and looked in her eyes, seeing only shock there. Sarah, are you all right? Of course I'm not all right. Do you need a drink? A drink isn't going to bring him back, is it? Shh, it'll be... Okay? Sure, Carol. It'll be peachy. I brought him here and he's fucking dead. How is that ever going to be okay? I... I... Yeah, that's what I thought. (sighs) Gerd slunk out of the room. Katie wished he wouldn't, but he'd probably be more use with Sarah than he was here. In all his years, he never had grown much of a strong stomach. Tired? She shook her head. Thrashed is more like it. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. Maybe he hadn't. No. He was sleeping. How can you be sure? Amos tilted his head toward her. Katie? Katie continued rifling around in the middle drawer of the dresser. He slept the night I... What the... Her hands found something, a pouch, and inside what felt like a pile of little metal toothpaste tubes. What'd you find? Katie pulled one of the tubes out. It looked like a tube of paint. Kevin's brow furrowed. Why would he steal a tube of paint? It's not just one. Katie pulled out the whole pouch. What? He snatched the pouch from her arm, swept the top of the dresser clean of its various toiletries, and upended the little bag. A dozen tubes of paint spilled out onto the wood. He started fumbling madly through them. They're they're the same brand. He picked up a tube of yellow and unscrewed the top, squeezing a bit onto his finger. Still fresh? He recapped the tube and turned it over in his hands, examining it. That son of a bitch! Kevin? Amos crossed the room to join them. My initials, right here. These are mine. Son of a bitch stole them. Swapped them for replacements. He held the tube out, and Katie could plainly see the letters KW scratched onto the label. Katie decided that the world had just quietly slipped down a rabbit hole. Wait, wait, wait. That doesn't make any sense. How could he know what brand you use? Or what colors? He's never met you before. Ah, he'd met Sarah. 
How would she know? And why would she tell him? Kevin shoved the tube into his pocket, looked to the door, and set his jaw. Let's find out. He made it about two steps before Amos caught him. Kevin, calm down. There's an explanation for this. We'll find it. How? We're stuck down here. We've got no way out. That's how. Katie leaned back against the dresser, mentally kicking herself for not having seen the absurdity of it before. Whatever's going on, it's going on here. Amos nodded and turned his attention back to the bureau that Gerd hadn't finished searching. He looked back over his shoulder at Kevin and Katie. You finished with the dresser? Yeah. Not much in it. There's that bottle and his wallet and a cell phone that's not getting a signal. I've got one more... Huh. Katie's hands found something else. A pair of cool, palm-sized spheres. What now? Kevin came back to her side just as she pulled two mottled, reddish oranges out of the drawer. Now she was sure they'd gone down the rabbit hole. I thought all the produce went bad. My oranges! Kevin virtually jumped at them. Well... Amos stood up, evidently having finished his ransacking job. Now you can do that painting. But why would he take those? More to the point, why would he take them and not eat them? Well, smelling his shit isn't going to give us any answers. Kevin tossed one of the oranges into the air, caught it again, and headed for the door. Amos didn't follow. He turned back to the body instead, checking it over once more. Katie folded her arms and took a few heavy, fetid breaths. She didn't like it. Nobody knew how he died, and she couldn't keep from wondering if someone had come in here and killed him. She knew better than that, of course she did, but he had been an ass all week, and with everyone going a little raw around the edges and with how he'd attacked Sarah, well, whatever happened, nobody should have to rot in a bed in a strange house. We can't leave him like this. Well, what do you think we should do with him? Kevin asked from the doorway, where Adele also hung back watching the proceedings. Take him out into the backyard and cremate him? Actually, I have an idea. With considerable difficulty, Katie and Amos managed to wrap the body in Katie's tarpaulin, and then Gerd, Amos, and Kevin carried it downstairs to the garage. There, they opened up the side door that normally led out to the garden area. Using a pickaxe and an impact hammer, the men dug a hollow long enough and tall enough to slide the body into. Jeremiah's body would keep in the chilly catacomb until help arrived, or until the snow melted, at which point they could drive out and find the authorities themselves. The snow through which they dug in shifts had started congealing under its own weight. No longer powdery or even slushy, it clumped together, forming a brittle ice wall. It was hard, brutal, unforgiving work, but it kept a man busy, and Gerd, for one, undertook the grim duty gladly. It gave him a way to keep from dwelling on the unpleasant thoughts rising in his mind since he'd first noticed Amos's odd behavior early this morning. It was more than the man's usual melancholy. He'd been cagey, suspicious, like a man who had a secret he didn't want found out, or like someone searching for a place to lay a burden of blame. And it made Gerd feel useful, putting his shoulders behind doing some kind of shallow honor to someone Sarah loved, even if he couldn't fathom why. Like so many things in this world, the ritual had meaning that went far beyond its mere words and actions. Once Jeremiah was foisted in, Gerd undertook to pack some of the loosened, shaly ice in around him to keep his stench from drifting back into the house. By the time he finished, 
All the others but Sarah had shuffled out, none of them having anything to say that was appropriate to a funeral. When Sarah touched his arm and asked for the violin, he wouldn't have dreamed of saying no. In the great room, the five of the remaining seven sat huddled close to the hearth, piled one upon another for comfort. Gerd stood apart, playing his violin to Sarah's voice. She sang Mochilama, the ancient Irish love song, a tribute to a love lost on battlefields long forgotten. She sang, her voice thick but clear, the only eulogy that Jeremiah was likely to receive until his body got back to his family. As the last note of the last chorus failed in the great room, Carol stood and made her way to the makeshift bar, opening the last new bottle of 18-year Macallan and collecting seven tumblers, which she delivered to the table. A long silence enveloped the group as she poured the amber liquid, and Gerd found himself a spot on the hearth a little apart from the group. He'd learned long ago how to cope with grief and with shame and with disgust and guilt, but one thing he'd never been able to get his head around was relief in the face of death. What was one supposed to feel when someone died who had already exhausted his welcome, had spent his sympathy, and had, at the last, become something impossible to respect or admire? How could a man honorably react to such a thing? Gerd's grandmother had been that way, but when she died there was at least a history there Gerd could chew through. The cold relief he felt now, the complete anticlimax at Jeremiah's death, was easily the least pleasant feeling he'd ever known. But he could grieve for Sarah and her loss. Looking over the faces of his friends, old and new, Gerd saw something similar in each of them. Perhaps the honorable thing to do was the same as it was most times in life. The truth, in the end, was all that a man had to hang his hat on. He mulled on the words of the Gailish tune as Sarah took her seat with Katie and the others, looking up at him as if expecting him to say the words that would lift the veil of uneasiness from the room. He didn't know how good the words would be, but Gerd spoke in English the lyrics of the song. They were the only ones he had to hand. Noble, proud young horseman, warrior unsaddened, of most pleasant countenance, a swift-moving hand. Quick in fight, slaying the enemy and smiting the strong. This is not the Jeremiah we knew. Incongruously, Sarah smiled a wistful smile. But that's how I saw him. Well, at least until this week. He always had so much passion. He poured his heart and soul into everything. He did what he believed in. Gerd smiled gently. That would seem a requirement. Everyone you've ever loved has been this way, n'est-ce pas? It's different. Backstage, everything is so nasty. Everyone jumping on top of each other to try to be queen of the hill. Finding someone in a show who's genuine? I fell in love with him right away. She choked back a sob, took a breath, and continued. I didn't... I, I didn't know what it meant to him to be the only bright light in the room. Gods, why did he... She trailed off and looked to Katie for help, but Katie merely shrugged as if she had no words to complete the sentence. 
Carol picked up the first tumbler and handed it to Sarah. It's not a proper wake without a drink. Good idea. Kevin reached his hand towards Carol and was rewarded with a tumbler with three thick fingers of amber measured into it. In turn, everyone else received one, Gerd taking his last. Carol sat on the coffee table and held her glass up, then looked at Gerd. Gerd, I think you kissed him last, would you- something wrong. He raised his glass and searched for the right words. To Jeremiah, may he be remembered for his passion, but not his temperament. The whole family cried, Hear, hear, and drank as one. Amazing, isn't it? How it takes this to get us talking about who he was. He wouldn't talk to any of us when he was alive. Amos rolled the tumbler thoughtfully between his open palms. His mind seemed far off, not concentrating on his own words at all. He talked to Katie. No. No, he really didn't. He'd asked me questions. We spent time together. But he didn't tell me much about himself. Carol slipped off the coffee table and turned to lean her back against Garrett's legs. Perhaps he's happier wherever he is. We don't know that this is all there is. Sarah clearly wished Amos would leave his skepticism out of the proceedings. No, we don't. But deep down, we all suspect it is. Death is the undiscovered... Death is the undiscovered country, the horizon beyond which we cannot see. Adele quoted Shakespeare back at him. It's a load of crap. There's too much of us to just stop. We know too much. We sin too much. No god would make animals like us just to have us die in a handful of years. Why would a god who created all this give a damn about the anxiety that such small beings have about their own trivial lives? We might as well care about the value of a cockroach, or a bacterium, or a quark. Some people do. Sarah's eyes wandered towards the fire, and she spoke half-absently as she lost herself in its glow. Jeremiah did. I don't think anyone ever cared more. Carol followed Sarah's gaze to the fire and replied in kind. If how much we cared counted for anything, the world would be a very different place. Adele nodded silently, lost in thoughts that seemed to go far beyond the confines of the room. Jeremiah cared about life, so he railed against a culture built on animal corpses. How is that wrong? Other than we're all used to wearing leather and eating steak. It's a splendid vision. A world without exploitation or suffering. We know the world doesn't work that way. Carol's gaze left the fire and returned to her glass. It occurred to Gerd, not for the first time, that she'd been drinking far more than usual this year. Somebody, ultimately, will hold the stick. If nobody ever tried to change the world, all of us would have been burned at the stake by now. Probably none of us would ever have met. So what if the world could change? What if it doesn't have to work that way? Carol took another sip from her scotch. When she spoke, her voice was thick. But with tears of anger or regret, Gerd did not know. No, no, no. This isn't like feminism or civil rights. Mrs. Pankhurst wanted to change the way that the law treated women. Jeremiah's vision would mean that life would have to be able to survive off something else besides eating and using other things that used to be alive. Maybe you can't get there from here. But the world should be different. 
It should, maybe, but it is not. Gerd reached down and squeezed Carol's shoulders, hoping that somehow the solidarity would comfort his former student. You cannot build paradise by ignoring or destroying the facts of the world. Lenin wanted a worker's paradise. He made slaves of all who loved him. Amos reached for the hearth and set his tumbler down on it. We're just filling space. All of this is academic. <laughs> Says the academic. We have to find something to keep us busy, so we don't go nuts. How are we going to do that when we don't know how he died? Or who killed him? Katie's words were calm, matter-of-fact, untainted by worry. It took a moment for them to sink in. Amos was the first to speak up. Nobody killed him. He killed himself. Sarah shook her head sternly. No, no, he wouldn't do that. He loved life. Did you know he was bulimic? Bulimic? Katie nodded slowly. I wondered. Yes, he was bulimic. He starved and his heart gave out. That's not possible. He was a dancer. He told me he was afraid of his career ending. No, I mean... Lots of dancers are bulimic or anorexic or whatever, but starve? He was eating every day. Even bland garbage. He was working out every day. He had energy. You can starve without going short on calories. Vitamin deficiencies make your organs deteriorate. You age faster. Bulimia ages the heart and kidneys really fast. And if you suddenly take away the most nutritious foods... Like his vegetables and fruits going bad. Then it's just a matter of time. Now it was Katie's turn to wear the bewilderment mask. But why would he take Kevin's oranges and not eat them, if he was in that bad a shape? Gerd felt Carol shift uncomfortably against his legs. A meter away, Amos mirrored the gesture. The question unsettled them both profoundly, which did not lend Gerd great confidence about either of them. Sarah reached back and grabbed a blanket from the arm of the couch. She retreated into it, shivering. It's cold in here. It's getting late. How are we supposed to sleep? Jeremiah's dead. He shouldn't be. We're like rats in an icebox down here, trapped. Something is attacking us. Katie laid a hand on Sarah's forearm, calming her friend, then looked to Carol. What are we going to do? Carol shifted again to sit on the coffee table, facing everyone, including Gerd. She looked across all their faces, then seemed to reach a decision. Nobody sleeps alone. Everyone double and triple up. If something's really coming after us, maybe it won't come when we're together. The group nodded mutely, the fire gradually drawing all their attention back to it, and there was silence for several minutes. Six thousand years of science and history. And when one of us dies, we still huddle together in the dark like children. In the face of death, mon ami, we are all children hiding in the dark. <gasps> Katie jerked violently awake in a cold panic, syncopated words ringing tunelessly through her head. <sighs> Her breath fogged in front of her mouth, the candle near the bed having long since burned out. She was freezing. Even Amos's body next to her was chilled on the skin from the cold air. Thankfully, in the dull blue of Carol's safety nightlight, Katie could see her two bedmates spooning contentedly. As the world before the nightmare came back to her, she relaxed by inches. 
Everything was as it should be. Kevin and Adele had paired up to sleep in Adele's room, while Sarah kept Gerd company in his. Katie's nightmares were the same as they had been the last several nights. Sleeping with company didn't help. Then again, it hadn't helped any other night either. She knew that should have told her something, but she was sleepy, and her bladder was itching, so she had more pressing concerns. She dragged her ass out of bed and into her robe, picked up a candlestick and lit it with a match from Carol's silver candle service. She stumbled groggily down the hall to the bathroom, remembering after she was already more than halfway there that she could have used the master bath off Carol's room. Oh well. That was the price of being half awake. In the bathroom, she set the candlestick on the dusty vanity, gathered the hem of the robe up around her hips, and sat down on the toilet. Her toes were numb from the cold floor, and her breath still puffed like she was an old smoker while she pissed the discomfort in her abdomen away. After a minute, she took a wad of toilet paper and dried herself, then stood up and grabbed the candle. She didn't bother washing her hands. She didn't fancy having them freeze on her trek back. She could wash them in Carol's master bath where she could dive back into bed and warm up again right afterwards. The candle cast ghoulish shadows on the walls, making the place look like something from a Halloween spook house. Her vision wasn't very sharp without her contacts in, but she could have sworn there were little piles of dust everywhere. On the vanity in the bathroom, on the picture frames in the hall, it was as if she walked through a long-forgotten hallway from the other side of Alice's looking glass. The moment she thought that, the noises started. Quiet, distinct scratching sounds from inside the walls, moaning and heavy breathing from the bedrooms. Katie stopped in her tracks as the noises built higher and higher until she thought her ears would bleed. She tried to run back to bed, but her legs wouldn't obey her. The moans turned to screams, like everyone in the house was being stabbed to death in the middle of an orgasm. Suddenly, the whole house lurched. It was an earthquake. She still couldn't move to get to the safety of a door jam. Behind her, something shattered, like a knick-knack falling off a shelf. The whole house vibrated like it sat atop a gigantic engine, a dark, thumping noise joining the scratching and screaming, turning the house into a cacophony of suffering and death. Then she heard the footfalls, and the whisper of Behind her, a breathy, sexless voice mumbled, You can make the whole world end. If you but count down to ten, we'll make the whole world end. If we just count down, if we just count down from ten, they will burn the world and then we will go down. Katie's brain found the pathways to her feet again, and she whirled around just in time to see a shadow cross the end of the hall and duck down the stairway. When she stopped her spin, the candle in her hand toppled out of its holder and fell to the floor, and the light went out. Katie bent down and grabbed the candle, then started backing toward Carol's room, her eyes fixed on the top of the staircase, waiting for the figure to appear again. The dim light from the nightlights coming up from the kitchen in the great room was all she had to see by. She'd almost made it to the safety of Carol's room when the figure mounted the stairs again, seemed to notice her, and flew towards her. Katie scrambled backward, lost her footing, and slipped. She looked back up just in time to see the shadow run headlong into her, knocking her off her feet. <sighs> Katie sat bolt upright in bed, her body drenched in sweat. The room around her was comfortable, not cold. In his sleep, Amos's arm flopped a bit, trying to figure out which way she'd gone. The candle on her side of the bed that she'd left burning earlier that night had burned down a couple hours' worth. Carol slept peacefully on her other side, her body warm and inviting. 
After looking at the clock and seeing that it was still 3.30 in the morning, Katie lay back down, pulled Amos and Carol close to her, closed her eyes, and relaxed into their warmth. If she had any more dreams, she did not remember them. Sometime later, in the living room below, the house's nightly steward did his, or her, or its business of removing the dust from every surface and setting the world to rights, making sure that no detail was overlooked. You've been listening to Episode 21 of Down From 10. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Starring T. Morris as Amos Maple, Philippa Ballantyne as Carol Lewis, Nathan Lowell as Gerd Falkstein, Miss Callender as Sarah Evans, Kitty Nakian as Katie Sato, Nobilis Reed as Kevin Walden, Chris Lester as Jeremiah Evans, and Christiana Ellis as Adele Surhan. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2009 Kitty McKeon and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 2009 J. Daniel Sawyer, based on a screenplay copyright 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Aliens and humans alike wanted to stop him at any cost, kill him if possible, destroy his quest for glory. He marshaled his forces and unified all the races under his violent leadership. They fought as one, left their blood on the field of battle, but persevered and conquered. He led his comrades to victory time and time again. And now, he's back for his second season. Quarterback Quentin Barnes returns for his sophomore effort with the INF Krakens in Scott Sigler's hardcover novel, The Starter, on sale April 1st, 2010 at slash the starter and at Amazon.com. The sequel to The Rookie, The Starter is a sci fi sports gangland mashup described as any given Sunday meets The Godfather meets Star Wars. This sign, numbered, limited edition collector's item is available for pre-order on April 1st, 2010 at slash the starter and at amazon.com. I'm Brian Clay, author of the Kingdom Crisis Anthology podcast. You're treating your auditory senses to Down from 10 by the indisputable king of podcast production, JD Sawyer. As the sidekick who is about to be eaten in almost every B-movie ever made says, What the hell is going on here? Only four episodes left to go. Gail Carriger is a friend of the show, and she'll be coming round the weekend of the 16th to record a wrap-up feedback show, which means there will be even more content continuing to drop while I get Free Will back on track. More importantly, her book Changeless is now on store shelves and is climbing the bestseller charts. She hit number 20 on the New York Times list this week. Here's hoping she climbs higher. 
Changeless is the second book in the Parasol Protectorate series. If you're unfamiliar with it, scroll back in the feed and listen to the soulless sample chapter we produced in the full production Artistic Whispers style. It's a lot of fun. Also, Scott Sigler's The Starter, sequel to The Rookie, is available now for pre-order. Click on the link on the website in this episode's blog posting and get a discount for ordering through me. Just use the code SAWYER when ordering, that's S-A-W-Y-E-R, to get your discount and help me earn brownie points with the Dark Overlord. If he takes over, we're all gonna need them. I have publications coming out. Those of you who would like to own revised, enhanced, and otherwise gussied-up print versions of The Man in the Rain, Cold Duty, and Angels Unawares should check out The Pod Complex, an anthology from Dragon Moon Press coming out in a couple of weeks. It's not available for pre-order yet, but it soon will be. I'll be featuring updates about it on my site as they come in, and I will definitely let you know as soon as it's available. For now, keep your ears peeled, and hopefully we will hear something soon. Also coming this month from Circlet Press is the science fiction erotica anthology Apocalypse Sex, featuring a revised and improved version of my story Buried Alive in the Blues. This is an ebook format anthology only at this point, but if you have an e-reader or a smartphone and need something to keep you warm in the evenings, this might be the anthology for you. I'll keep you posted with details as they develop. Our cast member spotlight today falls on Nathan Lowell, he of the many accents who plays Gerd in Down From Ten and Senator Shelley in The Antithesis Progression. Nathan is no mean novelist himself, cranking out well-constructed, fun, and thoughtful books at a speed so impressive that some in the podcasting community have started to measure word counts in terms of the Lowell. One Lowell equals 5,000 words in a day, so most of us measure in millilowells. Of course, any hack can pump words out, but Nathan is no hack. As I listen through the first in his Solar Clipper series, I can't help but be reminded of Heinlein's Juveniles, the adventure stories that captured my imagination as a teenager and still have the ability to transport me. Nathan's stories are like that, with his own very capable voice. The first volume, Quarter Share, is hitting print soon, so you should do yourself the favor of following him on Twitter at nlowell to keep up to date, or you can listen to his books on patiobooks.com. And with that, we come once again to the end of our sojourn beneath the snow. Send feedback to feedback at jdsawyer.net. I'll get a new voicemail line uh, probably tomorrow night, so the uh, next episode you get, which will be tomorrow night or Monday, will have the new voicemail number in it so that you can call with voice comments, or you can just email me an MP3. Uh, and of course, you can leave comments on the blog at jdsawyer.net. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends, post a review on iTunes, and blog about us. Questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats are all welcome. Also, I have a couple of contest winners to announce. I'm going to announce them over the next two episodes, which will be dropping in the next two to three days. That's right. Down from ten ends this week. The final four episodes are coming rapid fire. And now to the nagging questions. What did Katie see in her nightmare? Is it just the after effects from the day's turmoil? Who or what was really behind Jeremiah's death? And why does Amos claim it was bulimia? And perhaps most importantly, what are those little wounds that all of them, even Jeremiah, seem to have? Find out next time. And remember always... You can make the whole world end if you but count down from ten.